Turn with me to John's Gospel, the 21st chapter. You're reading the first 14 verses of John 21. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And in this way, he showed himself. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, We are going with you also. And they went out and immediately got into the boat. And that night they caught nothing. But when the morning was now come, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, Children, have you any food? They answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast. And now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it, and plunged into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, but about two hundred cubits, dragging the net with fish. Then as soon as they had come to the land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid on it, and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish which you have just caught. Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to land, full of large fish, 153. Although there were so many, the net was not broken. Jesus said to them, Come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them, and likewise the fish. This is now the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word, a faithful record, true and food for our souls. Let us pray together. O Lord God, as we continue in our worship before you, as you have called us, out of the business of our life in the world, as you have called us at the opening of the week, yea, even at the opening of the day, we've come together on that day to remember even what is celebrated in this passage. Christ is risen indeed. And oh, the impact your work has accomplished. Fathers, you sent your Son, your choicest servant of all, your only begotten Son, to come into the world to be a Savior of sinners. Even now, as he has accomplished that work and ascended to your right hand, Father, we are assembled before you, drawing nigh in Christ. And through him, you have sent your Holy Spirit into our very hearts. Lord, would you, by your Spirit, bless us, refresh us through this means of grace, the preaching of the Word of God. Though the world call it foolish, Lord, we embrace it. And we delight in it. And we rejoice, O God, that you take what men seem foolish that you might show forth your great glory and majesty and the power of God unto salvation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Children, I want you to think with me about something. Right now, you're not home. Though I would say you're in a familiar place, but you're not at home. Later on this afternoon, you will return home. 
and you pull into the driveway, and you probably won't even think about it, but there would just be this sense, I know this place. I'm at home. You go through the front door, and you won't need to turn to your mother and say, where's my bedroom? Because you know your way around the house. This is a very familiar place, a comfortable place for you. It is your home. I want, to imagine, I want you to imagine that you've been away on vacation maybe for a week or two. And that sense of coming home that you'll have this afternoon, how much greater is that when you come back from a vacation? Surely your adults know this. There's something, the vacation was good, but just to come home, to pull into that familiar place, uh, to come to familiar soundings, surroundings and familiar things. There's just something peaceful about that, something refreshing you might even have a feeling of warmth. I can remember growing up, you know, you know, you know that I've lived in many places. And over the years, I had friends, you know, they were born in the one house and lived in the same community, went to the same school. All their friends were there, married a girl from two blocks over, lived three blocks over from their parents. And they just say, talk about what's, what a wonderful thing it is just to come home. And I go, I can imagine. I didn't know what that was like. Um, after having been with you for a year, I returned to southwest Virginia and I think I experienced that. After nine years there, going back into this place, there was something familiar. I felt like a, I belonged, like it was a place, a culture of people that I understood. Well, the disciples have spent a majority of their time, three in three years, with Jesus in Galilee. If you look at the Gospels, most of Jesus' ministry, ministry took place there. And it was a place that a number of them, over half of them, grew up. They grew up in Galilee. This, this was home for them. They knew their way around. They, they, they knew the paths and the byways. So for those that were men of the sea, as we see in this passage, they, they understood the Sea of Galilee or the Sea of Tiberias, as it's called here, that they understood that place. It was familiar to them. It was in Galilee. They saw Jesus do so many of his miracles. That first one was in Canaan, of Galilee, when Jesus turned water into wine at the wedding feast. It was beside the Sea of Galilee that Jesus had cast out the demon called Legion from a man. And it was in Galilee that Jesus took a few small loaves and a few fish, and he broke them and performed a miracle, feeding 5,000 men plus women and children with just a few small provisions. It was on the shore of the Sea of Galilee that Jesus called Peter, James, and John away from their nets and promised that he was going to make them fishers of men. After all this had happened, all that, all that had happened in the past few weeks, uh, the arrest of Christ in the garden, the, him being led away, them fleeing in fear, and, and then uh, perhaps observing for far, hearing of the, their, their master, their Lord, the one whom they love, was crucified, and, and he had been buried. And then the words came that he was raised. All this was in an unfamiliar place, and, and now they've come home. Luke records in Acts 1.11 that after Jesus left them to ascend up into heaven, there was two angels in that place. Two angels appeared to them. And notice what the angels said to them, men of Galilee. That's how they were known. Galilee was home. He said, why do you stand gazing up into the heavens? It is in Galilee that Jesus will spend the final few days with these men preparing for his departure. Earlier... Jesus had commanded them 
that they were to go on ahead of him from Jerusalem after the resurrection, the events that we've seen, that we are to go on to Galilee and to wait for him. It is in Galilee where we find them. It is in Galilee that John records his records. We're going to be in Galilee. We're going to be here in this place for the next couple of weeks, this week and two more to follow. Just as we've seen before, John is reporting proofs that the crucified Jesus is the very same one who is the resurrected Jesus. He was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into the grave. But then, that it was impossible that death and the grave should hold him, he rose again. He rose from the grave, and he has brought life. So what we want to learn Again, from this text, as we've been seeing in a number of these past accounts, is the certainty of Jesus' resurrection. The certainty that the same Jesus who was crucified and buried is the one who is raised. And we also want to notice this week and over the next couple of weeks just how warmly Jesus welcomes his brethren, back to him, how he receives his disciples, how he embraces these men who in that dark hour fled from him. This is what we will see in the account this week and next. We have four main headings this morning. They're printed in your worship guide. The disciples go fishing. Secondly, we'll see how Jesus revealed himself to them at that time, at that place. We'll see what it is for those to come to Jesus, or we could say returning to Jesus in a fellowship meal then by the sea. We'll just comment on this chapter 21 before we go on. You remember John began his gospel with something, this is about three years ago, children, you may not remember this term, but it begins with a prologue, something that comes before his account. He begins by introducing his main topic, the main focus, the Lord Jesus Christ, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is who John is writing about, and he goes on to describe him, that in him was life and, and light, And then he goes and begins to record the record of John the Baptist who came as that forerunner. John, who as the orders of the priests, was the one who anointed Christ as Messiah. He began with a prologue. Well, in chapter 21, we we find what um, authors and and, uh, book printers would uh, write uh, an epilogue. It's the account that comes afterwards. Now, children, uh, some of you are old enough that you've watched something like a documentary, something uh, telling the story of something that happened in history. And then it comes to the end of it, and the main focus is wrapped up. Or you might see this in another type of movie where there's telling of the story, and things get wrapped up and concluded. And then maybe as uh, words start going across the screen, and you're told about, well, so-and-so married so-and-so and lived here, and so-and-so went on to become a, a senator and so forth. It's, it's like it's an epilogue. It's after the story is told. There's a record about some other things that took place, or we might say tying up loose ends. Is there a loose end in John's record? What about Peter? Peter who denied the Lord. I guarantee you that was a loose end for Peter. Well, the Lord ties that up, and John records how that took place. These men, these 11 men who still are alive, had fled from Christ except for John, um, where do they stand? 
with Jesus. That's a loose end. And so in this epilogue, John records and ties up the loose ends. And it is John 21 that explains how Peter, who three times denied that he even knew the Lord, even with an oath he swore he did not know him. This ties together how when we come into the book of Acts on Pentecost, there's Peter boldly preaching Christ and being crucified, the only hope of glory. And so we see then the disciples go fishing. We look at verse 1, um, and very much like in the Old Testament. We're going to see this. Uh, we saw it in Genesis a couple of years back. Uh, we'll see it in Exodus where a section will begin with something of a, a summary, a, a, an introduction of the things that have happened. That's just happened a few other times in John's Gospel. And here we see John kind of giving a, just a short uh, introductory sentence, an explanation, and then he will begin to tell the details of it. Notice what he says, after these things. So we know this follows after what we've already heard about. He doesn't tie it to a particular thing, but there's no definite time passage. But nonetheless, it's after these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, or as I mentioned earlier, the Sea of Galilee. And in this way, he showed himself. So after these things, Jesus manifested or revealed himself again to the disciples. He tells us where it happened at the Sea of Tiberias and in this way. So he's going to say, in this way. How did he do it? How did Jesus make himself known? That's what's in this record. This uh, first verse uh, and along with the 14th verse, provides something of uh, brackets or they, I, I don't want to use big words, I'll, I'll do it for you adults, an inclusio. Uh, they, they, they include, there's this story in between these two things because we've heard first one, look at verse 14. This now is the third time Jesus showed himself, revealed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So these two kind of encompass this account of how Jesus showed himself. It's in the middle Children, think of it this way. Forget the word inclusio. Think of a sandwich. What's on either side of a sandwich? The pieces of bread. They, they kind of hold what's inside. The good stuff's in between the two layers of bread, right? We're going to see what the good stuff is because that's what John has recorded. Jesus had told the disciples, we find that recorded in Mark 7, to go to Galilee after his resurrection, to go to Galilee. He would meet him there. And John tells us in verse 2 that seven went. He names them, Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, his uh, um, Arabic, not Arabic, um, Aramaic. Those words are in there. It's probably when you get older, little words slip away from the Aramaic name. It was the twin. I don't know why. We were never told about this twin, what the name of the twin is. Uh, maybe he just looked like his father or something. And so, you know, you know, here's little Thomas. Some of those things happen. So we have Thomas, the twin, and Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee. Oh, look at that. We're told right there. He's from Cana in Galilee, the city where Jesus did his first miracle. And the sons of Zebedee. James and John. And then John mentions two other disciples, two other disciples that are not named. These were all then together. So here's seven of the 11 disciples who are together who've gone fishing. It does not mean the other four weren't in Galilee, but they did not go fishing. These seven went fishing. 
the four of the five named were together in the beginning. When Jesus began his ministry, we find if we look back that Peter, James, John, and Nathaniel were together. They were there at the sea. They were fishermen. They were all together in those opening accounts. We're also told that Andrew and Philip were there at the beginning. You will remember how Andrew was very effective in going and finding people and bringing him. From beginning with his brother, he brought him to Jesus. Uh, there's later on, right before the crucifixion, that it was through Andrew that the Greeks were seeking Jesus, and Andrew brought them to Jesus. So that may be the other two. Andrew and Philip might be the other two who are there, because they were all from Galilee. Of these seven men, though, it's Peter who has a plan. And what is his plan? He says, I'm going fishing. Sounds like a fun thing to do, doesn't it? But this wasn't like, you know, your dad saying to your kids, hey, let's load up the car, get some fishing rods, we're going fishing. These men had been fishermen. That, that was their work. That's what they did. They, they caught fish, they sold them, and, and they used the money they gained uh, to feed and clothe themselves and their family, to have money to give to the poor, to donate money into the to temple and so forth. That was what they did. So for this Peter to say that I'm going fishing, he was going back to something he knew. He had been a fisherman. He knew how to do that. And it's very likely that they were in his boat, that his fishing boat would have still been there, and he went in it. Now, you notice something here. I hope you've figured this out. Peter is a man of action. Uh, you know, you, you read Mark's account of the gospel. It, it's Peter's record, and, and it's, it's marked with this immediacy, this moving. That's what Peter is. And it came across in his preaching, even as a preaching is often a reflection of the man. It shouldn't be you know, copying some other man. It's affected there, and Mark's gospel brings that forward. Peter's a man of action. Now, John is often the first to understand things. Remember back in, in chapter 20 and verse 8? What do we see? They came, the other, then the other disciple came to the tomb first, also went in and he saw and believed. We explained that he understood. John understood. John figured things out quicker than Peter. We'll talk about that more a little bit later. Why go fishing? I'm thankful I don't have... 20 commentaries on the book of John uh, because the commentators, to, to use a phrase that's often used, they spilled a lot of ink on why were they fishing. Uh, some of their ideas are rather fantastical, and I won't trouble you with what they are. They went fishing for no reason. I think the most obvious thing that we should understand is Peter, they, they didn't want to be idle. They've gone to Galilee, like Jesus told them to, and they're waiting. And rather than being idle, they are gainfully employed. But I think what that tells us, this reminds us something about the disciples. These were not wealthy men. They didn't have large estates uh, with laborers and, and large accounts and, and stores laid by for three years. They, <coughs> they've lived as the people were generous to Jesus and his disciples. They, these men don't have great means, and they need to eat. They have needs. What do they know how to do? They know how to fish. And so they've gone fishing. Remember the apostle Paul. He was a tent maker. And we find in the accounts from his letters, uh, in Luke's account, the Acts of the Apostles, Paul would 
make tents. He would labor with his hands rather than depending on the, the churches he was planting. He paid his own way as he went along. And we still use that phrase today. When I was in southwest Virginia, uh, funds were very limited, and I got permission from my presbytery to labor out of bounds in, in the language that was used as to be a tent maker. Now, children, I didn't really literally make tents, but it was this idea that, that something I knew how to do, I would do to help supplement our income. And so here we could see it that way. Peter says, let's go fishing. We need some money. And then what are we told? John goes on to tell us that the others said, they said to him, we're going with you also. And they went out and immediately got into the boat. And that night they caught nothing. Now, if I go recreationally fishing because I like to fish and I come home with nothing, it's still been enjoyable to go fishing. But when you've gone fishing because you need to sell fish uh, to pay for your needs to come home at the end of the day with nothing is more than a little disappointment. It has an economic impact on these seven men or the five that went or the, yeah, the seven who went fishing. They fished all night. Do you remember how the gospel accounts begin? Right before Jesus called this men, what had they done? They'd been fishing all night. Morning had come, and they'd caught nothing. Now, Jesus used one of the boats to preach from, and then Jesus said, well, well push your boat back out and, and let down your nets once more. And they said, Lord, we fished all night, and we caught nothing. We weren't successful. He says, let down your net. And they caught such a great number of fish that the nets begin to break, and they had a hard time bringing it in. But apart from Christ, on their own, they had nothing to show for their labors. We'll see something more about this in a minute. So I want you children to think about this here in verse 4. And when the morning was now come, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. A little later on, John explains that they were about 200, stay, uh, 200 uh, cubits or a, a thousand yards, the length of a football field away from the shore. And Jesus said to them, Children, have you any food? And they answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. Now think about this. Who are these men in the boat? They're fishermen. What do they know how to do, children? They know how to fish. They know how to handle the boat. They know how to handle the nets. They know how to go to those places where they would expect to find fish. This is what they do. And, and they're there, it's early morning, and there's some stranger, they don't know who it is, from the shore, and he's giving them advice on how to fish. Now, ordinarily, we have a hard time taking advice from strangers, right? Particularly if we have no idea if they even know what they're talking about. And we've all encountered those people who think they know what they're talking about on any topic, right? And here they are, these fishermen. All night they fish. They haven't caught anything. He asked me if he caught anything. He said no. But then he, he calls to them tenderly. The New King James translates it children. And it's really the idea. It's endearing. It's little children, or we might say lads. For indeed, who is that on the shore? The Ancient of Days. But he also is their master, and he cares for them tenderly. And you see it as he says to them, children. Well, Jesus asked the question in such a way, in the Greek you can do this. He asked it in such a way he knows the answer is going. He's expecting the answer to be no. And certainly that was what they had to say, no. And so then the stranger speaks again 
And by this, he begins to reveal himself to the men in the boat who he is. That brings us to our second point, how Jesus revealed himself. Verse 6, he says, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved, we know that's John, said to Peter, it is the Lord. Peter, I mean, John understands quickly. He understands who this is. He's, He's connected to the dots. They might have responded like we would have. Stranger says, let down the net again and say, hey, we're fishermen. We know what we're doing. There are no fish in the sea. There are none. But they didn't respond that way. Uh, they might have said, you know, we, we, we're look on either side. There's nothing here. But they didn't respond that way. And so they cast down their net one more time. And then they were not able to bring the net ashore because it was so full. John connects the dots. I think it's highly likely that John's remembering an event that took place three years ago, the one I referred to a little bit ago. It's recorded in Luke 5 when they dut down their nets in obedience to Christ, and they're beginning to understand who is this teacher that has come that we've just heard. He's more than a mere man. Look at what he's accomplished. He's told us he's the master of the sea. They're also, they've seen him walk upon the sea, walking on the water. They've seen him feeding the 5,000. They know these miracles, and John gets it. John connects it on. You understand, it's the Lord. This is familiar. This has happened before. It's got to be Jesus. There's no other explanation. What's interesting is this time the net didn't break. The Lord kept it together, we would say. So even as John was the first to see the empty tomb, the fine linens laying there, even the headpiece folded up neatly, laid aside, and he understood that Jesus was resurrected. Jesus then revealed himself to his disciples with a miracle of a great catch of fish. Now, at the outset, children, you remember what I said to you, that in this passage, John wants us to understand that this is the same Jesus who was crucified, dead, and buried. It is the same one who is resurrected. And what a wonderful way for him to show that to his disciples to, in a sense, repeat a miracle. It's a little different. We have a count of fish, and we're told that the the nets did not break this time. But he's revealed himself in his works, even as all the miracles that John has recorded. What did he tell us about the miracles he's recorded? These were recorded that you might believe that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that believing you would have life in his name. That's why these things are recorded. John understood it was the Lord. The scripture records, if you look at the Gospels, and then also Paul in in, uh, 1 Corinthians, uh, we have a record that Jesus appeared 12 times after his resurrection. This is the seventh one in this sequence as they unfolded. Uh, John here tells us, now this was the third time, verse 14. This is the third time in his account. It's not a conflict, it's just the third time in what he has recorded. There were six appearances of Christ to the disciples in Jerusalem before this one. This is now the seventh. Before we go on, I want to stop and just let us think of some application. How did Jesus make himself known? Through mighty works, through a miracle. But you know, there were many people that saw the miracles of Jesus and they did not understand who he was. It's the Holy Spirit who must work in us 
For we are dead in our trespasses. We're incapable of understanding spiritual things. We don't have the capacity to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. The Holy Spirit reveals. And so we can say that John's confession is revealed, yes, the circumstances and events that will give some clarity, but the Holy Spirit's working even as when Jesus asks his disciples in, in Matthew 16, whom do men say that I am? And then he says, and who do you say that I am? And Peter says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Son of Jonah, flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Mighty miracles. Many people read of the miracles. Some scoff at them. But these miracles took place. We have this account of an eyewitness. So I asked the important question, who do you say Jesus is? Do you believe that Jesus, the same Jesus who was crucified, rose again? It's essential to salvation, that you believe all these things about him. And here is evidence from these witnesses that this one performed this miracle, even as he had done before. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? If you do, bless God, for his Spirit has revealed it to you, and rejoice that he has granted to you a gift, eternal life, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And indeed, give God the glory. For he has done great things in your heart. Well, thirdly, we look then at the coming of Jesus. John was the first to understand, and Peter was the first to act. Based on what John had figured out, John took action. John goes on to record that when Simon Peter, the verse 7, heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment. There's a, a parenthetical explanation for he had removed it and plunged into the sea. Another language is a little more descriptive here. It says that he was naked. But that's not like birthday naked, okay? Uh, what he was saying, he was not appropriately dressed to be seen in public. He was had been stripped to like his loincloth because he was fishing. He was working and didn't want to get all wrapped up in outer garments. And he's going to leave the boat where he's working. He's going to go ashore. And so he puts on that outer garment and he plunges is the word there in the original. He plunges into the sea. He wants to be with Jesus. And he rushes to go with Jesus. Is this not a, a good example of how we should come to Jesus? We hear who he is. We understand who he is because the Spirit has revealed him to us. We should run to Jesus. We should plunge forward. Those who take the kingdom, take it by storm, come to Jesus without delay. Peter does. Peter could not delay another moment. Peter was coming to Jesus. Not knowing what to expect, he was going to the one whom he knew loved him and the one whom he loved, though he may have had uncertainties. Remember, these things set us up for the next passage. Well, the other six, verse 8, tells us they were coming, and it's written from the perspective of those in the boat. Then this, um, But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, about 200 yards or uh, 200 cubits or 100 yards, and they're dragging the net. It's too heavy for six men to pull into the boat. And so they're, they're rowing. Uh, the boat, uh, and they're holding the net, and they're getting to the shore with this great catch of fish. And then they get to the shore, and they too discover the truth of what John had said. Verse 9, then as soon as they had come to the land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid on it, and bread. Jesus was preparing for them. He'd come early, and he prepared coals 
hope to talk about this more again next week, but just think about it. Peter comes ashore. What's he smell? Charcoal. A charcoal fire burning. Where was Peter when he denied the Lord? Standing by a charcoal fire burning. I don't think this was accidental. Nothing that Jesus did was accidental. Peter would have been mindful of his three times denying the Lord. And again, we've seen the situation as Jesus will three times assure Christ of his love, assure Peter of Christ's love, his love for Peter as he commissions him. And so these other men come. Now, as they come ashore, Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have just caught. I think the interpretation of the text is he's not saying, I don't have enough fish here. Is this not the one who, with just a few fish, fed 5,000? Now, he sends them to bring the fish ashore. Uh, part of what they were doing, bringing them ashore, they would have separated. They would have thrown the little fry away. And they ended up with 153 great fish. This is an abundance of fish. So many that they might have expected the net to break, but they did not. And it's Peter, when Jesus said, Bring some of the fish you have just caught. Peter's quick. Here he gives. He goes. He's quick to obey, and he runs out. And he, now on the shore, he's got his footing, but in a strong man, too, he drags that net in, and he separates and discovers there's 153 fish. Jesus wants them to understand the greatness of the miracle. I think Jesus also wanted them to remember that when he called them, he was going to make them fishers of men. And though they have fled from him, he's restoring all of them. He's reminding them of the promise that he made to them. I will make you fishers of men. And though on their own, with their own efforts, they have caught nothing, with Jesus' blessing, they have caught a great catch. This is a picture of the blessing of God on their ministry that they will go first to Jerusalem and then Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And by Christ being with them, Christ blessing them, there will be a tremendous harvest. And so it is as... Acts is unfolding that Luke records of thousands. Peter preaches 3,000 souls added to the day. A few weeks later, there's 5,000 souls. And then when uh, Paul comes to Jerusalem some years later, he's heard that not a few of the priests have believed also. Jesus blesses. And indeed, he builds up. My friends, brothers and sisters, we have a great Savior. Apart from him, we can do nothing. But he has sent us, the church, corporately, individually. He has sent us into the world to make disciples, to baptize them. That's clearly within the context of the church by the minister of the word. And to teach them everything that God has commanded. Do that in your homes, parents. Do that with your little ones. Do that with the confidence that with Christ's blessing that he will gather your children into the harvest. Look to the Lord for the increase. Don't Labor in your own strength. And indeed, pray with a confidence. Lord, you blessed the fish to be in the net for the disciples. Lord, would you not bless in my household to bring my little ones home to heaven? Look at this Savior. Look at what he's able to do. And so he reminds his disciples of who he is. But having done this, fourthly, we see that they enjoy a fellowship meal by the sea. Remember the sacrificial system, a host of instruction, a number of different animals, clean animals that were acceptable to be offered up in the place of the sinner. 
some as sin offerings, some as fellowship offerings. And in most of the cases, the one who brought the sacrifice, they were to eat a portion of it for the Lord. Part of it went, depending on the sacrifice, to the priest. It was how they were fed. And, and, and some of that went then to their families, how their families were fed. But some part of the sacrifice was eaten before the Lord. A fellowship meal. Sinners coming to God in faith, offering up their sacrifice with an expectation of the one who was to come, that who these sacrifices pointed to, there was one who was to come. And because of that one that the Lord had promised, even the seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus Christ, they had peace with God, even as we've heard Jesus pronounce. Peace to you. They had peace to God, and they ate a fellowship meal. We saw in Genesis when uh, Jacob um, was at odds with one of the men. It was, it was uncertain. Uh, Jacob's household had grown. It was so large, and he was like a nation himself, and one of the nations there that came with his military commander came with him, and a covenant was made of peace. So that they were not going to be at war with each other. And they ate a fellowship meal. You find that all through the Old Testament accounts, the narrative's fellowship meal. And here Jesus has invited his disciples to come, and he's prepared a meal for them. Surely this would have been familiar to them. It was this same sea on the other side in an earlier day that Jesus commanded the multitude to sit down on the green pastures. He's the good shepherd. And then from a few things, he multiplied it and fed them. And the disciples took up 12 large baskets full of the fragments that were left over. Surely these things would be in their mind that as Jesus is doing, this this is familiar. They're at home, they're in Galilee, and familiar things are taking place. Jesus is feeding them with bread and fish. They had come from a night of labor. They were tired and hungry. This wasn't just a mere formality. They needed food, even as that multitude did. In the one case, they had spent three days with Jesus, and they needed provision. Jesus is showing him, showing them that even after he's completed his work of salvation on the cross, the greatest work of all, the most necessary work of all, he's still willing to stoop and serve them. It's as though he set a table before them, and he fed them, hearkening to the great banquet feast of the wedding and bride of the Lamb. The one who just a few weeks ago had stripped himself for work and girded himself with a towel and then took on the role of the, the lowest servant in the household, taking up the basin and the pitcher and going and washing the filthy, bruised, wounded feet of his disciples, humbling themselves. He says, have you seen me do? You go and do likewise. Be a servant. And here he's victorious. He's the risen, conquering king. He's God Almighty who will soon be seated in his humanity at the right hand of the Father. He serves them. Oh, the lesson for us. Let us never think anything is beneath us, but that we would serve our brothers and sisters. Verse 13, we read, Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them, and likewise the fish. He revealed himself to them in the manner of, a breaking bread and feeding them. It's the same way that those two had walked with Jesus on the road to Emmaus uh, on that morning of the resurrection, and they walked with him, and they recognized him, Luke records, when they 
with the breaking of the bread. Listen to Luke. He said, Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, he took bread and blessed it and broke it, gave it to them. Then their eyes were open, and they knew him. And then he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Did not our hearts burn within us while he was talking with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? Jesus will soon break bread for us. Oh, that we would recognize as we come to the Lord's table, He is a resurrected Christ. He is a risen and reigning Christ. He is exalted. Right now He's governing all the affairs of all the nations, of all men on the earth. I can't comprehend that. Can't keep up with my own life, right? And He's all of it. And, and then the vastness of the universe. All the stars and the planets and the solar systems and the galaxies, all perfectly ordered as He rules and reigns over that. And yet He would... Meet with us in worship and stoop to service. Even as he breaks the bread of life, the word forth before us, Jesus is known in the breaking of the bread. Is Jesus risen? Yes. Look at what he's done. Look at what he's doing. Look at the testimony in your own heart as the Spirit bears witness with you. John says that one thing was clear to them. They had many questions, no doubt. What was going to happen next? Were they going to talk about the, them abandoning him? Peter, no doubt. What, what about my denial? But one thing John tells us, verse 12, yet none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. All the evidence was overwhelming that they knew it was the Lord. And the spirit who was within them, even as the two on the road to Emmaus, as the Spirit burned in their hearts, their heart was burning. They know this is the Lord, and there's that confirmation as he breaks bread with them, breaking the bread for them, serving them once more. As we conclude, what's your conclusion, listener? What do you do with Jesus? Who do you say he is? Does your own heart burn within you? As you, you hear these things, these marvelous miracles, uh, the, the tenderness and the compassion of Christ with his beloved men who are sinners, who have failed him, and yet he comes to them and serves them. What's your response of your heart? Do you see him as he is, the Son of God, the Savior of sinners? Do you confess him as Lord? John, in verse 14, said three times the risen Christ has shown himself to the disciples. He didn't go to his enemies. He came to his friends. He would send them as his friends to his enemies, as sheep amongst wolves, and yet he will go with them. And so he gave his friends this spiritual lesson. We're going to look closely in the these few who are left, those who are with him. We'll see what they are. But remember, when Jesus called these men, he called them, as I said before, telling them he was going to make them a fishers of men. That night as they labored, their hands were empty. But when Christ was with them and he accomplished something, then they had an abundance catch. There's another lesson here for us. That we should understand that all our labors must be accomplished then with full dependence upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Mothers, as you go about your service in the home to husband, to children, do so as unto the Lord. Be dependent upon him. 
How do we best show our dependence? Show our dependence? Prayer. You want to be a fisher of men? Pray. He's called you to be one. Do you want to be used of the Lord to catch men, women, boys, and girls for Christ? We need to be engaged in prayer. And it's not that quick prayer. Maybe you pray at a meal. Lord, bless this food, our body's use, and bless my children and bring them to you by your spirit. That's appropriate. Prayed in faith. It's genuine. But do we get down on our knees and wrestle with God in prayer? Jesus was known for frequently going apart and through the night praying, praying through the night. We have not because we ask not. Earlier when we confessed our sin, we confess, you know, praying from prayerless hearts. Should sober us. It's too often a reality. Let us be people who pray. I have a wonderful book about some of the great preachers of Wales, written about men who were involved in the Welsh revivals. There was a young man beginning to start his ministry. He knew of one of these men, and so he went to the village where the man labored. He he walked hours to come there and asked where he might find the minister that he could ask his questions. And so they find him. He find him in the chapel, and so he goes and he slips in the back door, and he realizes someone is praying up front, and so he sits quietly for an hour two hours while this man continues to pray and finally being embarrassed he slipped away uh, a few weeks go by he walks again the several hours to come again to inquire this minister about to what did he attribute the great success and the blessing of God upon his ministry now if I remember right he, he went away again he comes a third time and he actually comes at a different time and he, he's able to engage with the man and he invites him into his study the old gentleman sitting in his rocking chair here's the inquiry of the young man what Advice would you have for me as a young man beginning in ministry? And the old man began to rock. And he says, praying, 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 praying. Be diligent in the study. Praying, praying, praying. The record of it, I think it's like 38 accounts of that man stressing the importance of prayer. God's not limited. He is able to do exceedingly abundantly more than we would ask or think. And too often we don't ask. Or we ask, you know, like the impatient child in the checkout aisle, I want it, I want it, I want it. Oh, that we would pray in earnest. And like Jacob, wrestle with God through the night. I will not let you go unless you bless me. For he is eager to do so, but he would have our hearts. And our hearts learn to cleave to him in prayer, wrestling with God the Almighty. I'm inclined to leave it there, but I want to say one more thing. Because this is important for us as well. Don't forget that previous application. But we notice differences in John and Peter, have we not? John quick to recognize, Peter quick to act. Their personalities were very different. They were very different men. And yet these two men complemented each other. They were chosen by Christ to to go forth in service of him as he plants and establishes his church, even with their differences in personalities. We can learn from this. Our differences are not to be obstacles. We're different that we might complement each other. 
that we might serve together. The body is complete when it has two eyes and ears and, and a head and arms and feet. We need every member of the body. We need one another with our differences. The fact of the matter is we're all crooked instruments in the hands of our Redeemer. And he, in his majesty, is able to take us flawed, imperfect, crooked images and build his church. That's that he would be praised. And you see that Peter's a mess at times, is he not? But look at what the Lord accomplished with him. Let us remember that about one another. Don't ever say to the hand, I have no need of thee. So let us labor together under Christ, praying, praying, praying for his blessing. Amen? Amen. Oh, Lord, our God, we seek you. We do pray you add your blessing to the preaching of your word, Lord, that you would write the truth of it on our hearts, that we would go away meditating on it, discussing it. Lord, help us to pass these truths on to our children. May we walk in the light of them throughout this week, that you would be glorified, and indeed that you would use us, crooked, flawed instruments, for the building of your church as you've promised to do. And Lord, we ask that you would build the church, strengthen the church in this place and around the world. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. We're going to sing number 274, Thine Be the Glory, from our hymnals, 274.